This is Chapter 105 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a trophy wife loses the life she wanted and finds the life she's meant to have with some bumps and laughs along the way. We discover mankind's last hope of surviving the end of the world isn't a human in the new novel from M.G. Wheaton. Plus, we learn how a long-kept secret can slowly erode a family over time. An old life ends and a new one begins in Trophy Life, the laugh-out-loud novel from Lee Geller. The story centers around Agnes Parson, a proud trophy wife and new mom who has to give up her pampered Southern California life and move across the country to the Bronx because of something her husband may or may not have done. As you can imagine, culture shock follows with some hilarious results. I'm going to let Lee, who recently swung by our studios, pick up the story from there. She gets these instructions from her husband. She packs up a used car with what little she has left, and she drives her six-month-old across the country to the Bronx, to the Riverdale section of the Bronx, where she takes a job teaching middle school English at a boarding school for boys who've been thrown out of other boarding schools. It's that kind of school. Those are that kind of boys. And they're middle schoolers, so their crimes are different kinds of crimes. They're not... They're not high schoolers. They're getting into sort of middle school problems at a private school. They're basically rich kids who've been dumped there by their parents who don't want to deal with them anymore. And no one wants to deal with them anymore. And she has to deal with them. And this is their story. Why these particular kids? And why the Bronx? I live in Riverdale, okay. first of all, and so and I love it. I moved there six years ago, and it just seems like a great place to set a story. I was looking for a place to set a campus, and uh, I live on the same block as Mount St. Vincent. And so this school that she teaches at is this school that used to be a Catholic university but was sold to pay for some settlement, and now it's a boarding school for rich kids. So there's all this sort of iconography around, and it has some of the creepy candles here and there and mismatched buildings, and it seemed to me like a good place. And I could also walk and visit it if I needed to. Um, yeah. Did you have the same kind of culture shock that Agnes has when you moved to yes. this part of the city? Yes, I did. I moved from the West Coast like Agnes. I had lived I had lived in Santa Monica for seven years, and then I had lived in Seattle for seven years. And so I actually was a very happy transplant. I did not love Seattle, and I love Riverdale. Having said that, shopping for produce in Riverdale is a nightmare. And when I wrote that book that it looks like everything has been grown in a Bronx toilet bowl, that's what it's like to go food shopping in Riverdale for the most part. There's one fabulous store, but I end up circling it for about 15 minutes looking for parking and then getting on the highway and going somewhere else. That's how unpleasant it is. For some reason, the amenities aren't there, but I love it and I love how mixed it is and how vibrant it is, but I definitely, and the bugs. The size of the bugs, the ferocity of the bugs. Also, I do remember thinking that something was wrong with the way I was driving when I moved back to New York because I had lived here during the college years. I had never really been a driver here because people were driving so close to me. Like I thought they were trying to warn me that someone was in the car trying to stab me or like my lights. But really, they just all like to get very close. And also when they're talking to you, like in, on the West Coast, there's so much personal space. Everyone's like a foot away and no one's talking directly to you. And you can ask for help. You might not get it. Here, everyone's going to tell you what to do. They're going to tell it to you about a centimeter from your face. And often they'll spit. And it's, it's, but, but it's great. But it was, yes. Yeah, so I remember having that culture shock. And uh, there's just so much of that that really comes through in the book. And I also love the fact that you both poke fun at what it's like to be a trophy wife, but you, uh, you also empathize. 
with what that lifestyle is like. I think so. I, I, well, I obviously I empathize with her. I mean, I love her. I spent so much time with her. I'll tell you the difficult thing about her is that you need to feel frustrated with her at some point. She needs to be that friend who's with someone you don't like. Um, and it was a fine line between making her so frustrating you wanted to put the book down, but you still, she's not that, you know, plucky heroine from the beginning. She has to get it together and come to her own senses. And so I do totally empathize with how she got in that situation, why she made the choices that she did. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was, it was the challenge for me was making her likable enough because it's women's fiction after all, but not so likable that it was unbelievable. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I wrote down in my notes here, I felt at times toward her what she had towards those middle school boys that you just wanted her that, to wake up and realize that she's not doing herself any good. I mean, that's it, right? You, I mean, she says to them, you, you keep making mistakes. I haven't finished cleaning up your last mess before you're making another one. And that's what Beeks is basically, her best friend is basically saying to her, like, what, what's wrong? Like, why aren't you moving on? Why aren't you walking away? And it's interesting, like, no one really likes a trophy wife. No one really likes a middle schooler. I mean, no one, no one overestimates either. So it seemed like a pretty good fit, not very likely. But when I was thinking about what, because I started with the boys. My boys were in the middle school. My house was full of sixth, seventh, and eighth grade boys. I would overhear them talking about how, how you know, they almost competed to see which, which, te- which one was most hated by the teachers, which one was most disliked by his parents, by his sibling. It's such a time of self-loathing and awkwardness that it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, not to look away. And I thought... But there's so much beauty in this age. They're so raw. They're so vulnerable. They're not self-aware yet like high schoolers. There's, there's something about them that I wanted to write about. And my challenge was to find someone who would be, in that, be almost as you know, hard to sympathize with as, with as they are. But yet you root for her anyway. So let's talk about toddler puffs. Let's talk about those <laughs> puffs. Because they feature prominently in the book. Agnes is addicted to them, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Now, is this something that you also really liked? Um, I will say that I had my first kids in Santa Monica where they are completely forbidden. Like they were, you cannot feed your child processed food. You certainly <laughs> cannot feed them processed food that you could buy in any store other than these stores. You know, it was very so. I didn't have them for a while. I mean, I couldn't even buy Cheerios. I had to get like the, you know, whatever kind, the healthy, grainy, gritty kind. And I couldn't figure out why nobody wanted to eat them. And then, yeah, with, one, with like one of my later kids, I tried one and I was like, this is why. <laughs> This is why they're keeping out there fantastic. Do you have a favorite yes. flavor? The, the sweet potato. The sweet potato. Uh, I mean, I'll eat sweet potato anything, but um, a sweet potato puff is something else. And, and Agnes was plum, plum carrot, plum I think? Plum carrot. Maybe there was a sweet potato apple. Sometimes they do like a veggie and a fruit to sneak yeah. the veggie in as if you have to sneak a veggie in with a puff. But yeah, I love them. So why don't you tell me what you're working on next? I am working on a book called The County Duchess, which is about this woman who moves to Duchess County from uh, the Upper West Side and starts to anonymously blog about the people in her fictional town of Pigkill. Um, and she's also, she, the reason she moved is because her husband didn't get tenure at their unnamed, big, fancy Upper West Side University. And on the same day that he doesn't get tenure, she's 43, and she finds out that her IUD has failed. And she already has two teenagers, and so she moves up to the Hudson Valley pregnant with adolescence and is miserable and sort of housebound and starts to secretly blog about the women in her town. 
And of course, it takes off, it goes viral, and it's what happens when it all comes crashing down. I'm sensing a trend with these stories you like to write. It's interesting. I am, I'm a mover. I've moved every... I haven't lived anywhere for longer than eight years. I mean, I think I'm staying for right now because everybody would kill me. But I do have this thing about physical relocation and sort of what what it does to you and how important I kind of think it is. But I also think I have this trend about women in situations and what they do to get themselves. I like right out of them. And I like writing about women and friendships and and, and the women, you know, the, not only the friends of their lives, but the other women in their lives who may or may not be friends. That's the kind of thing that interests me. So this is another one of those. And your humor really comes through the page as well. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so the book we've been talking about now is Trophy Life, Lee Geller. Thank you for coming by Thank and talking you. to us. Thanks for having me. Scientists predict we've got about 5 billion years before the sun at the center of our solar system starts to die and ends life on Earth as we know it. But what if the timing is wrong? Like, really, really wrong? Could humans be saved in time? That big what-if drives the action in Emily Eternal, the debut from M.G. Wheaton. We spoke about his book that's a little sci-fi, a little thriller, and big on hope. One minute I'm contemplating what it means to be human— the next I'm thrown into a wild thriller, only then to be blasted into an epic science fiction tale. You have to tell me what inspired you to write this story. Once the technology kind of got there, where you could um, begin to see what chemical memory was like, when you were able to see what uh, replication of a kind of human ghost experience would be like, um, it just got me interested in immortality in that way, and what a kind of transhumanistic experience would look like if technology and evolutionary biology kind of merged as it could well might. And that just kind of carried me out from there. For people who don't totally understand the concept, can you simply explain chemical memory? A few years ago at MIT, they were, they were able to take mice and they kind of condition it to move through a maze and find food. And they extracted the memory from the brain of one mouse, and they implanted it in the brain of a second mouse. And that mouse was able to then go through the maze and find its food. So it, we used to think of memory as kind of a, it created shapes and synapses. It was something that changed the way the brain worked. But being able to transfer a memory from one mouse to another means you can probably replicate memory in some way. And if you can replicate memory, that's uh, a step towards actually preserving human experience. And so, I don't know, it just uh, really captivated me, the idea of being able to move experience from one creature to another creature to another creature. You really could have gone, I guess, in any direction with that kind of uh, base. What what drove you to go into the direction of the earth is going to blow up much sooner than we expected? Well, I really got kind of interested in the last few years about the sociology of science and how much science changes based on kind of behavior between scientists. Some science, um, when all of Einstein's theories in the mid-century were kind of vaunted and everybody's like, don't question Einstein, a lot of competitive theories were kind of pushed aside. And in the 70s, that kind of science kind of came back into vogue and they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have pushed that aside. There was value there. So the behavioral interactions between scientists impacts the science that we see as 
consumers of science. And so I've always been curious about what the big, what big pieces of science that are out there that we take as for granted are going to turn out in the next century and the century after that to be completely invalid are just going to fall away once we under once we have a larger understanding of the universe and you know the sun is one of those things we we take it for granted that we have billions and billions of years with the sun and i was just like well you know what if it was much 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 sooner than that like five thousand years from a phase shift so just that idea of questioning what we know of quantum science universal science that just always interests me i have the feeling you were able to really let your imagination run wild did you have to check yourself along the way or did you really just let your let yourself go i had no idea anyone would even want to publish this so (laughs) i just kind of went nuts i was like when it came to looking for vestigial pieces of evolution like that would kind of predetermine like you can see now there's a lot of pieces of what came before homo sapiens buried in the human genome so it stands to reason whatever's coming next exists now in some way, somewhere in the human genome. And so I was like, wouldn't that be nuts if we could start predicting the next stage of human evolution? And so I just kind of went with that and went with the universe and went with just these transhumanistic ideas and machine guns and cars and artificial consciousness and just wrote, if, they, if you're supposed to write the novel, you don't think anybody else can write. It's just like, I'll just write this. And if it doesn't go, at least I will have done the story that I wanted to write. Well, I, I it was a, a very enjoyable story and also really had me contemplating what it means to be human, what mankind is. What do you think it means to be human? That That's something that the more and more and more you get into what consciousness is, what kind of separates us from kind of plants and animals in that way, being able to kind of organize your, use your senses to organize like a linear group of experiences. You can narrate your day, kind of establishes consciousness. You can remember things, you can change, you can use your senses to regulate and remember experience. You can tell the story of your life. And because that's so highly individualized to every single human, I think that level that consciousness that we're all imbued with i think that is um what makes humans so interesting because the human mind is capable of so much and such an indiv- like everybody's individualized experience of their life is so different from everyone else's even though their genetic code is relatively similar so i've always been interested in that idea of consciousness and unlike artificial intelligence being really interested in if that could ever be replicated artificially with an artificial consciousness. I love that Emily is this artificial consciousness and that, you know, when a lot of people think of AI or things in in that realm, it's always this malevolent being. But in this, in Emily's case, it's not. Was that very important to you to make sure that she wasn't, let's say, like Hal? So much of the bias we see in artificial intelligence um, comes from us. Uh, when there's bias in hiring practices at Amazon, when it kind of skewed towards not hiring women, it was because they were taking 
samples of the previous 10 years of you know, resumes, and it showed that there was a human bias against hiring women at Amazon. The same thing with policing, the same thing with uh, housing, the same with lending at banks. Time and time again, when you see artificial intelligence being in the real world malevolent, it's because the humans that have built it are the ones at fault. So if there was a consciousness that we were able to develop out, that um, was able to actually have a say, that didn't have the bias, that created its own biases, but had all the information, and could really look at humans as a species, as an animal, um, I think they would come away with a very positive view of humanity and see the good side of mankind. I don't think they would see mankind as this negative thing they would see a lot of experiences in the building of civilization as a negative thing, but I don't think they would see humans as an animal as a negative thing. So, Have you had any sort of feedback from the scientific community? Uh, just here and there, um, but it's friends, so it's always going to be kind of guarded in that way. It's always going to be that, like, oh, I really loved it, and I like that you did this. So I haven't had any objective um, response from any kind of scientific community. Do you think it will be well received by some or others will just say, well, well, this is just obviously a complete work of fiction. (laughs) I hope that um, they will see the parts of it, the science that I use as touchstones as it moves into fantasy, um, as entertaining, but it is in no way um, other than kind of where it begins there are artificial consciousnesses being worked on. There's n- there's none anywhere near the level of what Emily is, the evolutionary science, the, the kind of theory behind transhumanism exists, but it, we're nowhere near it. I hope that um, they would at least be amused, that they wouldn't be like infuriated the way the CDC would watch an episode of 24 and be like, this is, this is absurd. <laughs> so. And what do you hope readers take away? Um, I don't know. I, I hope that they are entertained. I hope that they think it's fun. I guess mainly I hope that they, it's like a fairy tale. I hope they leave with a little bit of optimism of, wow, if after a hundred years of stories of malevolent, um, if the computers knew all, they would launch a nuclear strike. It's, Like, no, if they really at the heart of us as an animal, as this species, I would hope that they would say, no, we are good. We do look out for each other. We are conditioned to be pack animals that look after one another. We have to be conditioned away from that um, in the military and policing. You have to, what we are as a base creature is pretty good. And if an artificial consciousness got to look at that, I think they'd recognize that right away. So... I hope that's what the uh, the takeaway is. And finally, I just need to ask, how do you really think the world will end? Humanity, I think, will peter out. I hope that there's some evolutionary step that moves us off of the Earth. I hope that there is something that allows for exploration. I don't know if it's going to be some sort of evolutionary step where we could exist and adapt to conditions on other moons and on other planets or on asteroids or even in a vacuum. I don't really think that's going to happen. Um, I do hope that mankind survives because I think it's worthwhile. I'm 
obviously with climate change, you never know what humanity is going to look like a hundred years from now as the planet changes and becomes inhospitable. Um, but I hope it survives. I hope that some of the good of what mankind has brought survives, but I don't know if it doesn't, then plant life, animal life, there is plenty of other species on this planet that would form a more peaceful ecosystem. So, oh. I think what I take away from all that, it's not that it's all grim, but I, there is this sense of hope in your book and I think what we've been talking about today. Yeah, I hope so. I'm optimistic. <laughs> so the book is Emily Eternal, M.G. Wheaton. Thank you for taking some time and talking to us about it. Well, thank you so much. One takeaway from The Limits of the World, the new novel from Jennifer Atker, is that it doesn't matter what country you're from or what religion you practice, managing family drama and expectations is tough. In this case, the family we're talking about are immigrants from the Indian enclave of Nairobi who've kept a big secret from their American-born son. I recently spoke to Jennifer about one of the book's other themes, the idea that we all talk to each other but don't really hear what's being said. Yeah, this is a family that is spread over continents and has moved almost one continent per generation. And as a result, the generations have completely different upbringings, uh, starting in India and then moving to East Africa and then moving to the United States and being Indian in origin, but having uh, all of these different uh, communities that they are growing up into and amongst and against. And and um, and that, I think that can't help but provide some strain. It puts some strain on, on a family and to make the expectations and the languages and the means of communication different. Of course, their personalities are strikingly different, too. It's not just how they grew up, but who they are as well. It's really very difficult for people to uproot themselves from maybe where their family was to kind of strike off, go on their own path and end up in another country and try to raise a new generation there. It's something that's been done for such a long time, but it never gets easy, does it? Immigration, of course, is the the story of the world and the story of America. And the more we look at places that we think have been constant for a long time, the more we see that there has been tremendous movement and migration in those places as well. And I think that that is always, always an interesting, an interesting thing that when we grow up, we tend to think of the world as, as just our immediate surroundings. And that's the way that the world is. But at some point, uh, we usually go somewhere else. And depending on the circumstances and the conditions of that move, that contrast between home and away can be can be strikingly difficult. Is that what you're trying to hit on with the title of the book, The Limits of the World? It is. Uh, it is this idea that uh, we all have our, our boundaries or what we think of as our boundaries. And then the closer we get to those limits, uh, sometimes they sometimes they feel to us hard and impermeable, but other times they feel actually quite porous and dissolvable. And it sort of depends on, on a, that particular moment um, and the particular cultural considerations of, of that time and place. Tell me what drew you to write about a family from the Indian enclave in Nairobi? 
Well, my first experience with this community was when I was 17. I, when I graduated from high school, I took a year off before going to college, and I did a program that took place in, in Kenya. I had never been to Africa. I didn't know anything about Kenya as a, as a country or its history, but it was a remarkable opportunity. And I lived uh, with an African family in the Rift Valley out in the West, but um, I became in contact with the Indian community, in particular through a doctor who, who treated me at a time that I, I needed some medical attention. And I, so I became aware of this community then, and it, and it really sparked my interest. And I was so curious about the history of this community. And I went to college. I became an anthropology major in part to sort of have a way of processing some of some of my experiences and, and thinking about how we understand other cultures. Uh, and then a couple of years later after college, as fate would have it, um, I met and started dating a man whose family was actually from this community. His parents were from Nairobi. And um, that was just too fascinating, a, a community and a story. And as I learned a little bit more about their, their experiences, I just got drawn in. It really is a small world out there. It really is. <laughs> How did you make that transition from studying anthropology and these types of cultures into writing a novel about it? Well, I was always writing. Even in college while I was studying anthropology, I was taking lots of writing classes, and I had been writing since I was a kid. So I knew that I wanted creative writing to be a part of my life, and I never saw myself as, as an academic, and I never thought that I was going to go to graduate school in anthropology, um, I but I did really enjoy that observational mode, and that was something that came very natural to me. And I did some documentary-style journalism, and um, so it was really the writing that was interesting to me. But some stories, I think, need to be fictional or more more interesting or more expansive can be can be more profound uh, if they if they are fictional and. Given uh, given my interests, and uh, that seemed, seemed like the natural way to go for this story. Is there any part of your own life experiences that have come, that you've inserted into this book? Sure. I mean, I think you know, at the heart of of this story, um, it's a mother son story, but it's also um, a story about two couples, and the younger couple uh, is reflective in some ways, um, in some very basic ways, of, of my husband and, and me. And so I think a, a cross-cultural and interracial marriage is, is something that we have uh, been practicing and enjoying and navigating for a long time now. And so I think I, you know, I can't help but put some of those experiences uh, into my life. Um, and um, but I'm, uh, there are four points of view in the in the book, and uh, most of them are imagined. Even the character who is sort of demographically most like me is is quite different from me. I was going to ask her: Are you like Amy, or are you? There's just maybe that passing resemblance to having the same similar background, but that's where it ends. A bit similar background. I mean, Amy is from a city. She's from D.C. I grew up in rural Maine, uh, so our backgrounds and our, our upbringings really are are quite different. And I, I worked hard to make her different from me and in, in personality. I think we we share some patterns of thought, but that's true with almost all of the characters. I think that when you 
when you imagine a character, uh, you're trying to see the world through their eyes, but a little bit of yourself creeps in uh, with with all of these characters because it's you who's who's imagining them. Um, I think that may be a touch more so for for Amy, but we really are are quite different. I want to talk about the philosophy that's peppered throughout the book. I, I will admit there were times when I when I struggled with the the argument that was going on. Why was it important to you to have that included in the book? Uh, well, I'm sorry if you felt like you struggled too much. <laughs> Not too um, much. <laughs> okay. A little bit of struggle is okay, I think. It made me um, think. I, how about I, I, I maybe should have said it that way. It had me really thinking very hard about... What, what was being presented in front of me, you know? I felt like I was back in my philosophy class in college trying to think through what was being presented. Okay, good. Well, I, I like that better. Um, and I, I think that that is an important but difficult thing uh, for novels to do. I think it's quite hard for novels to present uh, intellectual ideas and continue them through, and you don't want your book to feel like a lecture uh, or some kind of academic environment. You want to be swept up in it. And so I think part of the, the challenge, uh, the appealing challenge, was to think about um, how, what, what's an intellectual problem that is also a life problem? And how do we think about living our lives? And sometimes those ideals uh, come into conflict uh, with, uh, with the other rules that we've developed for ourselves about how to live uh, through other means, through our lived experience. So I really wanted to press those two parallel lines together and see uh, if they really were parallel or if they might intersect in, in some way. Do you think that you came to any sort of resolution with that, or is it kind of open for interpretation for the reader? I think it's open-ended. I think it's something that that we struggle with our whole lives um, when we uh, come up with a, a new idea or reflect on our lives, and hopefully we're continually reevaluating whether we're living our lives in the way that we want or in the way that we should. And I think that's part of part of being human, and that's that's important for us to continue to do. What is it that you hope overall that readers take away? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, I mean, I hope it's enjoyable uh, that this is um, a, a a journey, a narrative, a, a, a series of thoughts and reflections uh, that provoke people to think about their own surroundings and why they have the beliefs that they do, and perhaps to think about their the relationships of those closest to them. We've been talking with Jennifer Acker. The book is The Limits of the World. Thank you so much for taking some time and explaining the the story, the background, the culture. I mean, there's so much here that a reader can grab onto. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. And that's when we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, we get a toolbox full of life advice from the Mythbuster man himself, Adam Savage. He'll be coming into our studio, so keep an eye on our Twitter and Instagram feeds at WCBS880Books for some behind-the-scenes fun. Until then, I'm Lisa Chernkovich.